You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello, welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Louis Kornfeld. My guest today, Ed Herbstman. Ed, thanks for being here. Hi, Lewis. <laughs> I don't know why that was funny. But, well, it's because uh, we've been talking for seven minutes. Yeah, I guess that's probably it. Before the recording started. Yeah. We, so it felt, felt false Yeah, to just say hi. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But hi. Hi. Thanks it's, for having me. Thanks for being here. It's nice to, nice to have you as Is a guest. It? Yeah. Why? Well, because you're an intelligent guy with a, with a storied life. Okay. You're a, you're a living part of improv history. You have uh, uh, hard-won experiences and opinions, so it makes you an interesting person to talk to. Cool. Let's talk about TV. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about my contact lenses. Okay. You see Second City announced today that they're opening up a film school, a one-year film program devoted entirely to comedy film production? No, yeah. but I got an email today from Beth Kliegerman announcing general auditions for the touring company. That's great. That I'm going to post on whatever. For the land touring company or for the uh, sea? For the land touring company. That's pretty but sweet. they're not conducting auditions here, I think. Yeah, I think you have to go just in to, Chicago, yeah. but sure. I think they do them every year, right? Yeah. Yes, they do. So the 2016s will be in March. That's great. It's exciting. It I is. remember my audition, and when they cast me and I was in it, it was amazing. Yeah. How long, how, long, how long were you in, in the touring company? Short time. Only like a year and a half, I think. I mm-hmm. don't really... Re- yeah, I got hired, and then probably a little more than a year later, I moved to L.A. with my I.O. improv group, and we helped start I.O. L.A., I.O. West. Did you have a choice between continuing on the Second City path or helping Sharna to found I.O. West? I absolutely had a choice. Was that a hard choice for you? It was impossible. In fact, I avoided making it for the first four or five months while living in L.A. in various people's places saying, I'm only out here temporarily. Yeah. I, I lived in seven, seven different places my first two years in Los Angeles. And I remember calling uh, Kelly Leonard, the executive producer, and telling him, like, hey, sorry, I, ugh, I've labored over this and I'm deci- I've decided to stay here. And it was a real really difficult decision because my whole from six from age 16 on the only thing I thought about before I fell asleep each night was trying to get into Second City um, I know how kind of simple that sounds that it's but it really was the thing that turned my stomach all through college everything I did was will this help me get into Second City will this help me get good enough to get cast classes I would take I mean I was very obsessed of course I hedged my bet and studied other things and thought I might go to law school or thought I might do something else. Not sure what that was, but really in my heart of hearts, it was Second City. And I was doing I.O. all through college, studying with Dell and was on a house team and performing every weekend and shuttling back and forth to Evanston and uh, loved it and loved I.O. and was very loyal to it and... Uh, knew that I wanted to get into Second City. Still, those two things were not competing in my mind of like I.O. versus Second City. I just wanted all of it. So saying that I was going to leave and like quit the touring company to stay in Los Angeles was really hard. I avoided it for a long time, and Kelly just said, I knew you would. 
He's like, I, I don't agree, but I knew you would. Nobody comes back from L.A. is what he told me. And I'm like, don't be that way. And now that's what I tell people all the time. Nobody comes back from L.A. Yeah. What, uh, uh, what made the decision for you? Friendship. Mm. I was there with my college friends. was in an improv group with them and also just very close friends. And we were all like, you know, not all living in the same apartment, but three apartments between the six of us. And we rehearsed every day and we were teaching at I.O. West, which was really just out of the Stella Adler Theater, performing on the weekends. Uh, we were prepping to do the Aspen Comedy Festival. It was a really, really unreal time. It was everything's going our way sort of feel. Prepping to do Aspen. We got a manager. We had meetings set up. We did Aspen. And then, and it was crazy. You meet all these celebrities. I have this great photo of myself with my arms around Dennis Miller and Al Franken at the Aspen Comedy Festival as if they're my buddies. Like, that was my inside joke. Can you take a photo with you guys? Oh, okay. And I was like, my buds. It was, uh, it was a crazy time. You, we got repped by CAA. Uh, they, they, we, there was like a battle over our improv group between ICM and CAA. And then CAA is like, we want to introduce you to all these people. And then we took a bunch of meetings and we pitched show ideas and we got a show on MTV. I mean, it was a crazy time. Crazy. That, so, okay. Uh, and so I was like, why would I, yeah. uh, these are my best friends and it was winter. I'm not going back to Chicago, but it was really, really hard. Yeah. Really hard. I wanted, you know, you want something for so long and then to say goodbye to it for something else, that was hard. Was there a moment of clarity for you of, of, of like accepting that choice as being the right choice? I don't know if it was. Yeah. I guess that's my question is like, do you know when you make a right choice? No, I'm saying I don't know if it was the right choice. I know. That's what I'm... So, oh, yeah. does one ever know if the choice was right? Yeah, and what we're coming to is you don't I know think if it was that, right. I think that so much time has passed, and so many great things have happened to me in my lucky life, yeah. like meeting my wife, which wouldn't have happened if I wasn't in L.A., yeah. having my kids had I not met my wife. Clearly, because that's how babies are made. Right. I... I look at my kids and think I made the right decision. Whatever decision that was, I made the right one. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But career-wise and like feeding that thing that was deep inside me that was so hungry for something super specific that never got to eat it, uh, that's a gross way of saying. I had a dream, I have a dream, dream unfulfilled. Mm. I did get to understudy the main stage, perform in a main stage show and understudy I understudied AdSit and it was excellent I loved everything about it and I knew I would but what I didn't get was to be in a main stage show and what I did get was to go to LA go on that adventure and then visit Chicago and see my friends who I came up with like Tammy Sager Rich Tellerico Craig Kakowski they were in a main stage show together it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. The three of them were so good. Their show was so good. And I longed so desperately to be a part of it. And it was funny. I went out backstage afterwards. I'm like, guys, that, was, that blew me away. You have become incredibly good. You are 100% main stage, second city, kicking ass. And they were, 
I mean, I won't say bored, but it was their job. Mm-hmm. They, there was no magical, like, I know, shh, don't tell anybody we're getting away with murder. It's the most... They had become acclimated to it. Yeah. Like all... Like everyone does everywhere. To everything. You become acclimated to the great reward you have, and you see it less like a reward and more like normal. Yeah, I've heard that from a bunch of people that by the time you get to the kind of summit of what you were aiming for, you've worked so hard to get there that it doesn't feel special or it doesn't feel like it, it's just, it's part of now. I your think it's daily human routine. nature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had done a lot of myth making around the amazingness of what it would be like to be on the main stage at Second City mm-hmm. and a lot of myth making in my mind about what, what it would be like to be in the touring company. There were a lot of things I didn't like. Um, uh, I loved the work. I love, I didn't love being in the van for so long. Yeah. Um, some people love that stuff. There were things that weren't great about it, but I well, don't, for, for so long. So like how long would be an average van ride? Well, I you mean, it depends around, on where you're going, but right. let's say you have a seven hour van ride and then you stop for dinner and three more hours in the van. Yeah. That wasn't every day. I mean, you didn't gig every day. It was, you know, you might only have five or six travel gigs a month. And then you'd have your weekly show that alternated with the other touring companies, so every three weeks. And it was regular enough to feel regular, but um, in terms of consistency, not normalcy, it was still a delight and exciting. But the, you know, getting in the van and being in the van, I, I also wasn't a smoker, and there were a couple of smokers, mm-hmm. and maybe that was the whole thing for me. I've always been a non-smoker in the, a way that annoys people who smoke because mm. I won't shut up about how bad it is for you and how it's a, a, a really obnoxious thing to do around people who don't smoke. Mm. And, and this was the early 90s when it was still Everywhere. okay to smoke. Yeah. yeah. So I was a little, I mean, and I was young and very full of, full of Ed. I was very happy with myself. You were, just back up for a second, you, when you were on, was it Mr. Blonde at, at I.O. in Chicago? <laughs> you were like 17, right? Yeah. And, and like by far the youngest person in the uh, on the team? Well, by several years, yeah. yeah. I mean, I th- 24, I think, was the next youngest at I.O. at the time, and I was 17. I don't remember people younger than that. Okay. but So you were like a, you were a wonderkind. I was a really annoying wonderkind. Yeah. If that means you wonder why that kid is here, is that what Wonderkin <laughs> that's, means? That's what it means, yeah. Yeah, I was younger than most people, and mm-hmm. I was also really confident. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, if you can tell that I'm someone who was confident when they were younger, but I was probably more confident then than I am now. Yeah. Yeah, because... You know, I was in college, I was at Northwestern, I was studying performance, I was getting going to great lectures all day, reading great books, and then I would come to where it was the hobby for a lot of people, and they were, have, they, they were there for fun. Um, it was, I felt like, uh, uh, of them and not of them, too, because I wasn't allowed to stay after and drink. Right. You know? Yeah. I was allowed to drink. You could drink at the Wrigley side back then when you were 17, but I couldn't because I had to get back home because I had rehearsals or shows or classes or I had to study or hell, if you had to go back to college, would you hang out at the bar with a bunch of people who are older than you or would you go back to college? I went back to college. Yeah. Just it's a train ride on the L. Yeah. Oh, it was fun. 
You, and so backing up even more, when you were coming up uh, at I.O. in Chicago, yes. this was the era of the family? Uh-huh. This is, this is a little after Blue Velveeta and those guys, right? Blue Velveeta had splintered off, and mm-hmm. it was doing stuff at the Improv, okay. the uh, stand-up place. They had their own little theater, and it was like, um, oh, Brian McCann and Jay Leggett and... Um, the third person in that show whose mm-hmm. name escapes me and used to be a good friend of mine who I love a lot. And I'm so sorry if I forgot your name, uh, but it's really, I haven't had enough coffee. I'm sorry. Fair enough. So I, it'll a, come to me soon. He's a great guy. Uh, is it Mitch Rouse? No, no, he's, he's, he, he played with them, yeah. but he's not who I th- am thinking of. Okay. Sorry. So as a 17 year old kid, you, you had to have a lot of confidence, like just to be around You're you're there at, at, this kind of amazing fermenting period in Chicago's comedy story. You don't know it until afterwards. You didn't feel it when you were there? Well, I knew it was special, but I thought it was special. Right. Like, I didn't you, know You it just was, thought, oh, this is just the way this is. This is the way this is. Yeah. I was always surprised that more people didn't do it. Yeah. I was always shocked that it was as small as it was. But I watched it grow. When I started, there were three classes. It was Sharna, and then... Um, Gosh, was it Sharna and then Besser and then Dell? It was like the, the the number two, the level two kind of swapped around. Sometimes it would be taught by Miles or Ian. I probably am remembering wrong, but I did a couple of levels and then was in Dell's class mm. and was put on a team very quickly. There were only a handful of teams, you know, uh, three or four, maybe three. Uh, and the family had been around. They were the victim's family for a while, and then they became the family when one of them... Ugh, died in a terrible, terrible, tragic car accident. And then they changed their name from the victim's family to the family. And they were the, the tops. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were the thing where, you know, you know how there is a lot of overlap between theaters and people? There wasn't back then. It was either you're a Second City person or an I.O. person, at least when I started mm-hmm. there. And uh, I think... I kind of feel like Adam McKay was the first to really break the seal. And he was on The Family, and he was astonishingly good and so verbally gifted and so clearly a dominant force in on stage and off stage, but also a kind guy. Mm-hmm. Like, would take the time to have a serious conversation with you and listen to what you're saying and be as serious or as jokey as you dictate. He had no agenda, it felt like, when I spoke to him. Great guy, eventually got cast at Second City, and we were all like, it is possible. You can do IO and end up getting cast at Second City. Because I wasn't taking classes at Second City Mm. at the time. I auditioned for their level two when I was, I think, 16 or something. Their level one, and I auditioned for the level two and didn't get in. Correct me if I'm wrong about this. This was also a period, like the mythology of Second City has always been really strong, but but before McKay's cast, it was Second City was not the sexiest place in the world for the hardcore improviser, right? It, Correct. It, it was, you, they were coming off of that last kind of... It, uh, it was scowled at yeah. as a o- older... That's how they used to do improv. Yeah. That's short form. That's who, what, where in the first three lines. That's uh, sketchy improv that's built to become a sketch. 
And the improv value was based on how much you could repeat it and turn it into a sketch. Whereas at I.O. and Dell's prophetic view of all of it was this is the performance. Mm -hmm. The improv is the performance. The process is the product. It's not a means unto uh, uh, get you to an end. It's a means unto itself. It's an end unto itself. So that was the big philosophical difference. And really it just played out as there was an old guard. They did it the old way. And then there was a new guard who did it a really different way that ended up getting really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, looking back on it now with a little bit of, of life experience and perspective, was it really that different? Like, I know that there was a transition when the, when the McKay cast took over and Pinata Philippines uh, uh, hit the stage. I know that in the improv sets, they were doing a lot more spot improv than the kind of old-fashioned pad improv where you take a suggestion and, and kind of plan out your scenes beforehand. Mm-hmm. And I know that long form started to become part of the thing. And now if you go see a main stage show or an ETC show, mm-hmm. when they do their third act, it, they usually are doing a montage of mm-hmm. scenes. It, but apart from that shift where they're not really just like writing all the suggestions down first, was it really that different? Or, or was it a thing of the new guard having to kind of assert uh, an identity and really rail against the old timers? I think it was different. Yeah. I don't think that it really, and, and that's part of the magic of McKay is that he's a natural leader and got a lot of people behind him, even the old guard. People who were like, well, there was, all, all, there was still a lot of overlap. A lot of, like, Keckner and Adsit and a lot of people who sort of were, like, Dell disciples and were sneaking into the Second City farm to eat the chickens, you know? But the, there, there is a big difference between coming out, getting suggestions, and then going backstage. So when I was, uh, when I got my driver's license in Schaumburg, I went to a Second City Northwest show. In that show was... A great cast, including Dave Rosowski, Steve Carell, John Rabano, um, Fran Adams, Claudia Smith Special, uh, Amy Sedaris eventually joined it right after. Uh, I went there all the time, eventually got a job tearing tickets and seating people, and eventually did what I really wanted to do was warm my way backstage before the improv set and kind of hang out in the corner and watch them. Oh, God damn. Come on, you're mm-hmm. watching Rosowski and Carell. Take, somebody took the suggestions and brought them backstage on a little chalkboard, literally with chalk. They put the chalkboard up on the wall, and then they'd assign people, and they'd work out bits that they were going to do, and things, and, and they would often shoehorn a scene they were working on to retrofit a suggestion that they got. And then sometimes they would just say, okay, this we're just going to do a scene. And the better improvisers, the ones who really enjoyed like playing... And weren't, like, working desperately on the show. Mm-hmm. Like, Rizowski would always be, like, game for, I'm just going to, let's just do a scene. We'll see what happens. And it'll be fun. But the ultimate design was, let's hope we get something for the next show. And also, that's way different than just doing a montage or doing a long form. It really is different. If you plan anything out, you've instantly changed what the entire thing you're doing is. Whether or not what you plan out ends up being what you plan. Planning any content is not improvising versus this purity that Dell was, you know, an advocate of and like an enforcer and also an encourager and kind of a prophet 
seeing like, I see a vision of the future where improvisation is good enough to stand on its own. It is now a staple at Second City, and that transition was, um, I guess in retrospect, it's not like we went from a dictatorship to a democracy or anything like that radical. There was no civil war, there was no revolution. It happened over time, but it was really all that any of the insiders talked about. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, did you hear who was hired? Oh, they're going to change this? It really was Pinata Full of Bees that changed everything, that people saw that show, and it was the Hamilton of its time. Mm-hmm. I, I saw, we were talking about Hamilton right before the podcast, so that's why that's, uh, um, uh, I saw, I saw Pinata Full of Bees on DVD, and mm-hmm. I saw, uh, I don't remember what show it was, but Rosowski and Colbert and, mm-hmm. and Amy Sedaris. There were like a, a few, maybe maybe four or five years between those two casts, maybe. And my takeaway was that the older show felt a little more show busy to me. It felt a little bit more like a show, mm-hmm. like a review show. Mm-hmm. And Pinata felt more, it was more political. It was more... Um, abrasive is not exactly the right word but it was it was confronted the confronting audience. yeah that seemed to me kind and of challenged like, the audience yeah it, it, it seemed less like uh, show busy feels like i'm being like smarmy with it i don't mean to be smarmy with it but no, it, 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 it had a feel of lights up lights down now new thing lights up lights down new thing yeah. and it it had no matter how good those individual pieces were they felt like different pieces put together in a larger bigger piece and they relied on a structure that was tried and true where you start with a big group number and then you do a couple of smaller things and then come back and you look at the whole act more like a waveform or think of the Aristotle's structure of a well-made play. They would have a crescendo at the end or a climax at the end of the first act. They would take a break. They would come back. There might be a callback to something earlier, but it was in service of a joke. Um, it wasn't to call something back to shift its meaning or to reveal something new that implicates the audience in some, in some way. Um, and there was no call rallying cry. And you can't do that, that which, which Pinata had. Mm-hmm. You can't do that with every show or else that, you know... That becomes the brand. It becomes the aggressive right. nonconformist. It right. becomes boring after a while, you know? Oh, yeah, this again. They're going to confront the audience and challenge us and upset our political uh, expectations of what they're going to say. And they're going to suddenly, you know, challenge us, we we wealthy suburbanites, to take action to to go back to our hippie roots or our counterculture roots or, or anything like that. There's, you can't keep doing that. So, Pinata was kind of like simultaneously the new guard, a new structure new political bent, and a reaction to, I probably have this wrong, but there was a lot of, they literally had at Second City a show called Old Wine and New Bottles, mm-hmm. which was like a retro of our, retrospective weird, of our last Weird show. I saw that one too. Years. Miriam Tolan was in that and, and Avery sure. Schreiber. It was a weird show. It, it Yeah. It, 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 just, it had there a strange was, feel. A to, strange you can't do another distance. generation's comedy. There was a little distance between the audience and the show. Yeah. And it felt a little lifeless in a way that Pinata felt like too alive, yeah. almost electric and scary. Right. So, so, so it, it, like I said earlier, it broke the seal. It was like, no, there's no going back now. And, and they're really, <laughs> 
it, I have not, unfortunately, I haven't seen a Second City review in a long time. But the ones I did see after Pinata, they all were like riding on the, like wakeboard riding on Pinata. If Pinata was the boat, they mm-hmm. were riding on those waves where they could get away with stuff, start experimenting, and do strange things with the music and with the set and with lighting. And hey, let's shake things up. Let's not, they, no one was afraid anymore that if they, screwed with the tried and true method that it wouldn't work yeah they were like uh let's screw with it again and of course once the producers got a taste of like revolution happening at second city second city's relevant and important again in a way that it hasn't been for a long time it's been like a cultural institution but like there were a lot more fans and when the bears start winning there are a lot more fans you want to keep winning you'll invest in the team you know so they invested in the team. They're like, hey, we're, we're doing a good job. Let's do more of this. Yeah. So, of course, the producers put money behind making great, more great shows. So this is the environment that you're in. There's yes. this excitement going From on at Second City. 17 to 23. Yeah. Watching it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so you have to be super confident to even sit at the table. I guess. I yeah. think you do. I like because if you're not confident, Earned you're not going to. Yes. Well, Con- either which justifiably way, justifiably confident or confident. That's fine. Two different things. But I, yeah. I think I had enough. I felt I had studied with Rosowski for a year before I went to I.O. Mm-hmm. From 16 to 17, I just took classes with Rosowski. Was that at Northwest at Second City? At Second City Northwest. Yeah. While I was a senior in high school. Yeah. So you get Rosowski for a year. He is a very, very good f- teacher. And a great um, motivator. He's he will be like, yes, you can do this. Although he told me, do not study theater at college. You will waste your money. Yeah, you have a backup plan. And I was like, come on, me a backup plan. And uh, his backup plan suggestion was photography. And I'm like, that no, that's not. <laughs> <so."> <laughs> good. 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 No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't need a backup plan. What was his? Why was he against doing theater in college? Just you would get more experience in the because he was a realist stages. and he was yeah. like, "Why don't you learn something about the world instead of learning uh, more arcane things about uh, the the about theater? Yeah. Don't study that in depth. Study something else. Become a real person and then become an actor. Yeah. And everything you learn will will be useful as an improviser. I think that's what it was. I didn't really ask him, but I think that's what it was. Yeah. I've known him for so long that I feel like I can infer that's what he meant have a backup plan don't rely on being an actor i love that idea that's great because your backup plan is going to make you a better actor yeah have pursuits i think that there's like because david mamet has the opposite advice his thing is the second you give yourself a backup plan you're not you know that you've already opted out of this mm. particular path. And I, th- I think that there is Although David Mamet also that. says don't go to theater school. He does. Because all, all acting teachers are charlatans. He does. He, he takes an admittedly very strong yeah. uh, point of view in yeah. his books. Uh, uh, and, and he has I, a little I, asterisk there because he has his own acting school. Uh, exactly. So it, it's f- actually funny reading him because you have to take it all with such a massive grain of salt yeah. because it's so mm-hmm. one one chapter will completely contradict a different sure. chapter and totally and it's contradict exciting. his approach. It's and exciting to read like True False yeah. or Three Uses of the Knife. Yeah, you the, know? they're pretty good books. I prefer his, his books on theater way more than I enjoy his plays. Mm-hmm. I don't like his plays very much. Mm. But his, his books will keep you stimulated. I would say Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is good enough to make his other plays yeah. like 
bright in the, the halo. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. You give like the massive benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There. yes, I, I agree with that. Um, oh, but his, his point is, you know, you, you don't want to have a backup plan because you have to commit fully. I think that there's a difference between that idea of I'm, I'm a serious actor but I'm mm-hmm. also going to study something else just in case acting doesn't work out yeah. versus I'm a serious actor and I need to also live a real life and understand reality and not just yeah. do acting about acting or do comedy about comedy, oh, which absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And also what you major in in college is not necessarily have any correlation with what you're going to do in your life. Yeah. So why major in theater, I guess was his, he's like, look, you love it now study something else, get good at something else, and then theater is always going to be there for you. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't heed his advice. Let's move forward to L.A. for a second. Mm -hmm. So there's two different talent agencies, massive talent agencies, bidding on your improv team. What is it about your improv team? Because that's, that's like, unheard of. (laughs) It was also a, you know, I, it was good. Yeah. We did something very oh, I'm sorry. specific. What, what, what team was this and what you it, guys were doing? We called ourselves Bitter Noah. Uh-huh. And we did the improvised movie. And uh, uh, Dell invented the movie with um, the family. So it was McKay, Ian Roberts, Besser, um, pardon me, and others mm-hmm. in the family. Uh, I think Neil Flynn was with them at that point. Miles. And <laughs> and it was awesome. And so we started doing it. We're like, we want to do this. But we, I would say they were really good, but we rehearsed every day. We got very, very good at it. They were great in the way they were great at it. And I don't think we were great in the ways they were great at it. But we found our own way to be great at it. And... It was fast. So the movie form, for you listeners out there who have never seen it or heard of it, it is an amazing magic trick when you pull it off. It's still completely improvised, but you get a title of a movie that's never been made before, and then you begin from, from uh, the screen is black to end credits. Uh, uh, and in, in between those, you present a full movie that's about a half hour 40 minutes long so it's sort of shorthand movie in a genre that we're familiar with that isn't planned beforehand and you describe all the the entire team takes sort of uh, uses their teamwork instincts to help self-narrate the entire thing and self-direct it any person can step out and say something like um uh we see a desert a tumbleweed rolls by. Someone will become the tumbleweed. The camera pushes in. Uh, uh, the, uh, it's covered with sand and dust for a moment until it lands on a face. Then somebody uh, in your group will jump up and center stage be a face and will make a choice. And maybe it's like a grizzled face or an innocent face. If it's an innocent face, the person who's directing for that moment might say, behind those innocent eyes are a warrior. Okay, or they might go with the innocence thing and say, a 10-year-old girl stands naked in the desert, the dust, the only thing uh, uh, keeping us from seeing her nudity. 
So you're implying a bunch of things about what this movie is. Or it might be a sheriff, a grizzled old guy like makes a face, and it's like, uh, pull back to see this man with a brown shirt and a star on his chest. Um, there's blood coming from his ear. And then another person might step out and say, reverse shot over the sheriff's shoulder. So now the sent person standing stage center will jump, land facing the opposite direction, bend down a little bit, and the audience, as if they're looking at a movie screen, will see over his shoulder, someone will step into frame, and then some, and whoever steps into frame will become a character that is then added to and narrated by a different narrator. You have close-ups, you have helicopter shots, you have point of view of the you know, bird's eye point of view or a worm's eye point of view, angle up to reveal those sorts of things. And you have all the tools that a filmmaker has to tell a story. You have all the tools that you have as an improviser doing a long form story. It's a narrative and it's uniquely difficult to do because it has all the seductions and traps of falling into telling a story versus doing good scenes. You start planning and writing in your head. There's a lot of traps we worked really hard to overcome those traps, to have great scenes that ended up tumbling themselves together, stitched through a genre into what would end up being a satisfying story. And when it worked, it was astonishing. And when it didn't work, it was still a pretty damn good magic trick because the performers themselves were all highly qualified people, mm-hmm. including Paul Valancourt, who's still a teacher at I.O. West, mm-hmm. who you know, basically started... I.O. West was their first teacher. Yeah, I think I was either their second or third. And he, you know, is a very disciplined improviser who really understands the big picture and the small picture at the same time. He's got great skills. Another great person in that group was Cara McNamara, who he was dating at the time, who was like, kind of like, um, a a, a kind of no-nonsense Rachel Dratch. Like, Rachel Dratch is kind of up for anything and can make herself look uh, uh, dignified or foolish in service of what the comedy idea is. She's, like, selfless that way. Kara was similarly, like, I'll do anything. And also she she was, like, um, no BS. So there was a little bit, like, sass to her characters. I know. That, does that, is that mm-hmm. sexist to say sass when you're talking about a woman? It's context. I don't think so. Well, I think she would have embraced that. Uh, descriptor. Yeah. Like her characters had a no BS thing. Like yeah. they wouldn't get pushed around and There's she didn't an edge. get pushed There's a, She had an edge. Yeah. Um, and Adrian Wenner, who's the smartest person on the planet and uh, a, a tr- like there is no degree of black belt in improv that could be conferred upon him to match up with his unique and incredible skill. And, uh, Dan Weiss, another great guy who had uh, so many different talents and also was just really, really a funny guy who would, you would set something huge up and you'd set something up for four or five scenes leading up to a big moment that felt like a story moment with a climax and he would happily subvert it by just like, instead of fighting it anymore, just be the bad guy who finally gives in, Mm -hmm. you know, and move everything forward to where we needed to move it to not put up a fight he was he was very fun i mean and together you know and i and i was very aggressive i was like uh 
it, we all were. We all were like in the movie form fed that a little bit because you're competing sort of for who's the director mm-hmm. and who's guiding the story. So, and then the the last one of that core group was Jason Weiner, who is now a film director and a TV producer. He directed the pilot for Modern Family and I think is uh, exec producer either that or co-exec on that. He directed the film Arthur. He's directed a ton, you know, and he always was a film... He was a theater major at Northwestern. We all worked together in the Meow Show there. And he was like, you know, he was Hamlet his senior year in the big school production of Hamlet. Not the student production, but Mm -hmm. the school's production of Hamlet. And he was just, you know, he is a very smart guy. And he was just uniquely good at understanding movie structure and how we could create what we were creating. And again, Lewis, we rehearsed every day. We, did, we had day jobs, but they were at night. They were like, you know, waiting tables and stuff. So we performed on the weekends. We, or some of us taught. Uh, I think Dan worked at Starbucks. But we met every day for three hours in our manager's attic. This was, and this was for months and months and months. And then we did the Aspen Comedy Festival. So when we did it... People were like, improv at Aspen, let's see. And we really were like, um, you know, top draft picks. We suddenly were like, holy cow, who the hell are these people? That's a lot to have on the line to improvise at the Aspen Festival. I know. It was crazy. I didn't, looking back on it, it could have gone the other way. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, we did a good job. It was a good show. And there weren't, there, you know, we had internal problems as a group. You know, we oh, all groups do, especially when the pressure is on. Some sometimes we're not kind to each other. Um, but it was a kind of show where afterwards, like celebrities came up to us to tell us how great it was. Like, they Frank went out of their Miller. way. Well, though, no, uh, actually, Dennis Miller did. <laughs> like it was, you know, looking back on it, I think he was trying to get out of another conversation. <laughs> he stopped me as I was walking to the van, another van. <laughs> take us to our little bungalow in, in Aspen. I mean, it was crazy. We were all a little nauseous from the altitude. Yeah. Um, I was walking and, and he, he's like, stop, he tapped me on the shoulder. I turn around and he's like, hey man, uh, how are you? I'm Denny. I'm like, uh, uh, it was Dennis Miller. And at that time, 97, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, Dennis Miller, huge. Yeah. I, today's kids don't, you don't remember. Today's Dennis, Dennis Miller was pretty cool no. back in his yeah, day. He's and, not, yeah. And then he this underwent was before he did the whole become right wing. Yeah. Pre 9 11, Dennis Miller. Pre 9 11, Dennis Miller stops me. I'm Denny, man. What's your name? I'm like, Ed. He goes, That was a really great show, Ed. You're super funny. And I was like, Thanks, man. So are you. And then I went into the van and everybody saw it, everybody yeah. in the group. And I sat there for a second. And they shut the door and I just screamed, ah, you know, like I was 23, whatever, just like, ah, and, they, and then I just gave them all shit for like the rest of the trip. Like, hey, when Dennis stopped you to compliment you, oh, wait, no, he didn't, you know, stupid juvenile crap like that. Yeah. Guys, I can't make rehearsal. Denny and I are going to going to go to IHOP. I suggested Denny's and he was like, you're hilarious. But no, uh, can't do it. Yeah, got me and Dennis Miller and blah, blah, blah. So that was then the next night when I saw him. I'm like, hey, man, I'm that guy that you said that I was very drunk. You said I was funny. Can I take a picture with you? I interrupted his like reunion moment with Al Frank. And it was really <laughs> aggressive. It's probably the last <laughs> nice moment. Those yeah, guys yeah, had, that, yeah. It really, they really uh, diverged. 
Uh, uh, yeah, it was no, it was it was insane. Yeah. A lot of pressure on that. That back to that. A lot of pressure on that moment. But yeah. we pulled it off. It was crazy. We were all very confident. Confident we could do it. Yeah. It was a good show. I mean, we did that show a lot. You have a great show. You're, the boss is an excellent group. Thanks. You guys all complement each other in the unique ways that the, the accident of all of you together makes you all so much greater. It brings out the best in, in each other. And it diminishes anything that would be like, you know, if you didn't quite fit right, you'd see little cracks and leaks there, right. you know? And plus the friendship you guys have, the bond, it's... It, it's the the joint compound that holds everything together. We're very tight, and uh, we've been together for an awful long time. And and something that I think is cool about the team is that we still get red in the face arguing about what it should be. And uh, uh, you know, like we're very principled about stuff mm-hmm. in a way that I'm sure is obnoxious and alienating at the bar after shows. But I take it as a good sign that after many years, you still get like red in the face about mm-hmm. stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that takes me back to you guys, because there's something I'm interested in in these groups that have their eye on the prize, like like Bitter Noah, like The Family, uh, um, where there's a real work ethic to stuff. Like The Family, I, I'd read, would rehearse three times a week. You guys are rehearsing every day. A, a, I don't know where people are finding the time to do that. To get three people in the same room is yeah. is fucking impossible. Well, in your 20s, it's not. Yeah. A, a, and I, I and guess, in Los Angeles, it's not. Well, I guess that brings me on to my next question then. I, I, I To circle back to this choice between sticking with Second City and, and having a shot at main stage versus mm-hmm. going... Hollywood. Yeah. Um, uh, Because I guess what's interesting to me is there's this kind of shot with Second City, regardless of what you think of it as an institution. And I happen to have, I'm I'm kind of with you on it uh, of sort of for me in the back of my mind, it's it's been built up into this thing that's kind of like, well, Second City, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's, it's a little bit like Evander Holyfield fighting Mike Tyson. There's something where it's like, that is your shot to prove that you're the heavyweight champion mm-hmm. of the, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's not quite real. For me, it was always, that's where great people get amazing. Right. Like you have to be great to get there. And that's when you become astonishing. Yeah. And I saw it with performers who would be cast on, in a ETC show and you see them go through the transformation and doing a show in front of doing a great show. I mean, this tour, touring company is really good prep for it because you learn all these great scenes and you learn how to get the laughs out of it. And then you, when you do them more and more and more, you learn how to get your laughs out mm-hmm. of them. They become yours. They're unique to you that a person couldn't come in and get the same type of laugh off of it, even though it's the same line. They get a different spin on it. Their unique personality starts to grow. And then you see them, that person go to ETC or to whatever ancillary stage and then work their way up to main stage. You can even see it when someone's new to main stage. Ugh, little green. Mm-hmm. Not as powerful, but by the time they're ready to leave, they're unstoppable. You look at like Kevin Dorff right. or Adsit or somebody who in their f- final shows, it was the Kevin Dorff show or it was the Scott Adsit show. It was like that person is driving this train. They're the engine. They're all the parts. Not to diminish what the other cast members were contributing, but it, at a certain point, it's like their power is almost... Too big for any one performer. Right. It, which is, and then there comes like a natural point where that's where you leave 
the cast. You kind of like your personality. It's almost like you've you've gestated, mm-hmm. and now it's that's what time. I, that's what I wish I had gone through. Yeah, you know. So choosing your friends and choosing your destiny with your own thing, is there a part of that to kind of doing it on your own terms? Or, or is it just sort of like it felt like you love these people, you have this great chemistry, you have the work ethic together. So it's like going the independent I'm route. I'm sure I made a big pros and cons list that yeah. lasted forever and it included all of those things. And really what it came down to was friendship pretty good reason to do something i had friends back in chicago too yeah um so there that felt like i was leaving them and i had some things in chicago i did not want to give up i also had family there well isn't also part of it life experience too like moving to another city and doing this thing where there isn't there isn't like in second city there are steps to take it's hard as hell but but there's a path laid out you go to Los Angeles at that period of time, yeah. there aren't steps to take. And doesn't that also play into, like, well, you're also, like, soaking up lots of life experience sure. by having and to figure shit out by doing it. beautiful out. Yeah. No winter. And there were a lot of great people who had left Second City who were moving there yeah. at the same time. There was, like, uh, um, uh, like Teresa Mulligan and Susie Nakamura, who Susie let me live in her garage for an entire summer. Pete Holney moved out there and he was back and forth so he let me live in his house hmm. for an entire winter. You know, it was like, th- and these were people who I really looked up to who were like a generation before me or two before me at Second City. And I was like, well, they're doing it. They left. They're coming here. That made sense. And it's like, all signs pointed to yes. Like, in, like the only thing holding me back ultimately from like, are you crazy? Of course you should move to L.A. Your improv group's here. You're, you, it's beautiful out. Your friends, you're, they're good friends of yours. They're all moving, except for you, if you decide not to move. There's so many support systems out there, and the agent and the manager and all this stuff. Why would you not? It was, well, I want to be on the main stage of Second City. That's why. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, the louder... The, the louder voice was the deciding factor was I want to be with the the my best friends. I think that's what it was. Yeah. I mean, I had no plans to leave Los Angeles. I'd already given up Chicago for L.A. I wasn't going to move to New York. That's crazy. Why would I do that? I had nothing. So what happened? In New York. So you met Melanie? Yeah. She was moving to New York when I met her. Sort of. She was getting go, applying to grad schools and leaving L.A. Yeah. She got into NYU grad school. So, uh, in that case, it was love. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. That's a second beat off of friendship. It, it, yeah. And now the third beat is I have, uh, a family. So is that the third beat? I would friendship, love and group game. Yeah. I don't know. No, it works. Family works. I already don't like this show if the first beat is friendship. <laughs> it's just a little <laughs> sappy for me. <laughs> All right. So, so then, so, so after L.A., you follow Melanie to New York, and then you start it the It really new... wasn't after L.A., though, oh, because we were going to, we were going to, uh, there was a thought that we would just go to New York for a couple of years yeah. uh, while she was in grad school and then go back to L.A. 
Because I was like, why would you not want to live in Los Angeles? Yes, depre- uh, desperation is in the air. Yes, the desperation is in the air everywhere, though. Mm, this is a weaponized version in yeah. Los Angeles. Yeah. You've been to L.A., right? Never. Okay, so you don't know shit, Lewis. <laughs> Uh, Los Angeles is a one, this is well-trodden territory, but Los Angeles is a very different, unique place. Not unique like Chicago's got character and New York is New York. Right. Uh, LA is unlike everywhere in the world. And it, it is, it, it is a place where you could go to the cafe and get into a fender bender with Christian Slater. And it wouldn't be that big of a deal. It's like, oh, it's, damn it, my car. Oh, guess what? And here's the kicker. It was Christian Slater hit me. Oh, yeah, yeah. He goes to that cafe. Yeah. It's a different universe. And once you visit Paramount and have a meeting on the lot with the head of whatever, and you walk through the set where they shot whatever, and you're, you know, I was in a, I got cast in something as like, uh, in something called The Whitey Show with Andy Daly. That's how I met Andy Daly. Mm-hmm. Um, it was on the set where they shot Seinfeld, not the set, but on the stage. The, that soundstage, yeah. And Jason Alexander produced it. And so I was working with Jason. This was right after Seinfeld ended. And Jason Alexander is like my boss, and we're working out bits together. And I'm the host of this improvised talk show that was a pilot for MTV. It didn't get picked up, but it was like, this is crazy. I have to drive to CBS Radford, and I have a call time, and I'm working with Jason Alexander, and... It was nuts, yeah. that, but, but it's also like, and then when it's over, the next day, nothing. Back to waiting tables. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a, it's a crazy ride. And it's a different place because everybody is focused on one thing. Right, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's a, down, there's a terrible downside to that, which is the, everything about your relationships with everyone is infected by this need to succeed in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but also you're among some of the most talented people in the world all the time who have given up everything for their dream. And that's pretty, can give you a lot of energy. Let me ask you this. When you're, when you're in a room with somebody who, who is a hero of yours or, or somebody who is just like, okay, this, this is a, this person is a proven, they've proven themselves. Right. Um, uh, how do you manage insecurity? How do you, how do you, how do you put yourself in the frame of mind to put yourself there in that room and not talk yourself out of taking that job or doing that, doing that gig or developing that bit or whatever it is? Or is that not something that enters your mind? Like, are, are you, do you just take every, if, if, uh, um, Mike Myers calls you up and says, do you want to play with me tonight? Is that not a problem in your mind at all? Do you have like moments of doubt about being able to pull that off? I, I like Mike. Myers a ton. He's awesome. Uh, I think when I first when I first met him, he was like not a person to me. He was this thing. Mm-hmm. And then I've been lucky enough to. And this is an LA thing. One of my great friends who I met in Los Angeles who got me a job as a writer's assistant uh, for him because he's a big TV producer. He was friends with Mike Myers and I went to his house and Mike was there and I was like, I just turned, I just turned around and was like, fuck it, I got to talk to him. And I was like, Mike, 
And then he kind of was like, uh-oh, here it comes. Like, it was a small group, but it was like, here comes the, the kid who wants to talk about Saturday Night Live. And I just said, Dell. And he, he perked up. And he's like, go ahead, you know? And we talked about Dell forever. And yeah. he's a very big Dell disciple. And that's... Um, you know, and he has a lot of great memories because Dell directed him at Second City and Dell was an advocate for him. And like they had a and, and he got some a lot of good Dell magic. And Mike remembers everything, remembers everything Dell said and remembers every moment about that stuff. And he loves to talk about it, especially probably to somebody who has also kind of gone through that experience. And I'm I also was lucky enough to have spent time in L.A. So I know how annoying it can be to ask the basic star jaggy questions. And I'm not interested in that stuff anymore. Um, to, to me, Mike is like another great improviser who is just a funny guy. And to me, the pressure is like, I've got to also be funny mm-hmm. without being obsequious. Is that a pressure... Excuse me. Is that a pressure that I put that on my I put that on myself when I'm around guys like you too. Yeah. Like I I need to be funny here. Well, I've seen you like turn your funny on. You've explained that to me. I've seen you before teaching classes come and like hang out years ago when the boss would have like we'd play cards at the table before our show and you would come hang out at the table and would be like just developing bits to get your brain amping up so that you would be able to get into class. Like I've seen you turn funny on. Mm. Um that sounds kind of gross, actually. Well, yeah, but <laughs> it, it, like objectively watching it, it's gross. But when you're in it, <laughs> if you're not part of it, it's, it's a very if you're subjected to it. Yeah, I mean, don't watch other people do that. But you know what I mean. Like, I, don't I guess what anybody. I'm saying is like when you're around somebody, no matter how, like to me, like just celebrity is not is actually something I, I kind of feel bad for the person. Yeah, because. Nobody behaves like a normal person around them. And, well, I, I just watched a thing about Marlon Brando where they were talking about how badly... I watched a Mike, a Mike Tyson thing, too. And the same thing with Brando and Tyson both. How badly that fucked them up. Yeah. Because you come to a point where you can't trust anybody in your life anymore. I think, you know, Jim Carrey said it. Uh, he gave this... It's on YouTube. This speech at this, like, um, spiritual college for, like, people studying Hare Krishna, I think. And he gave a really great speech, and he was really honest. He said one of the best things about being a celebrity is everybody is at their best when they're around you. Mm. They're trying their hardest to be their best self when they're around you. And that's not true of civilians. We don't get that. You don't walk into a room and suddenly everyone is like, I better be my best self right now. People don't experience that unless you're a star Mm. or a super important person and imagine people being like that around you all the time i know when i was a when i was a a policeman it started to feel like whatever anyone said was a lie Mm -hmm. and it was relatively true that people were lying all the time to me when i talked to them so you start to not have the conversation with them that you'd have as a civilian you start to parse things and figure it out and use their answers to try to get to the truth rather than just assume it's true. I feel like as a celebrity, you, you must at a certain point start seeing when people are faking their best, best selves mm-hmm. around you. And I just try to not do that and not, I just try to not do that as like, and also like, I, I guess back to the Mike Myers thing is like, I know it's a gigantic thing. Like when he came and 
sat in and especially if it was a surprise or if we did like a two-person show and it was like we, we did a Manzuka's Brothers once and and Jason couldn't make it and I happened to just like why not I'll just ask Mike and see if and he was like okay and I just couldn't believe it and he said yes and we came we did a show and it was a great show and it was like for the audience I can only imagine God and I feel like for me I still kind of like yeah it's oh my God Wayne's World is amazing yeah. Austin Powers all that stuff but I also see him as a person who is like, like what kind of guts must he have to kind of sacrifice, almost like risk reputation to go out there to do a two-man improv show with Ed in New York? Like, that's, that takes guts. Because sometimes I step out there and I'm like, oh, the expectations of me are very high right now. Yeah. I've, founder of the theater i'm a teacher i've been around for a while i talk a lot of trash i don't know if i talk a lot of trash but you, you relative trash yeah well i have high expectations of everybody yeah and i want things to be good and when they're not good i feel like sometimes the my worst impulses get the better of me and i can be critical yeah so when i have a clunky show it feels like um like god am i damaging my reputation like yeah. those thoughts enter my mind I don't like to have a clunky show. Yeah. You know? So what's your adjustment before you take the stage? Do you have a fuck it moment where where you have to snap yourself out of thinking about your reputation and just be here? I should do that. That's something I should do. I read about that as being <laughs> Dell's fuck it adjustment. Somebody from the committee had said that they learned from Dell at the committee that right before you take the stage, you just got to go fuck it. Mm-hmm. And that fuck it lasts until the end of the show. And then after the show, you can turn your own shit back on again. But you have to be playing in the spirit of fuck it the entire time. I love it. Yeah, it's good. He also said two ounces of booze. And it's not great advice. I don't think so. But fuck it happens when you have two ounces of booze. So maybe that's the shortcut for when you can't actually say it. I would actually, I was talking with the guys on the boss about this not too long ago. I would, I would welcome doing uh, like a drunk show. Even Quentin? Yeah, even believe it or not. Mm. Not at the Magnet, not for our set, obviously. But uh, I would welcome just having the context where we know. Well, drunk is different than two ounces of booze. Yes, very different. Yeah. Do I have that moment? To me, before a show, um, it changes. It's changed over the years. It used to be before a show, I would like amp myself up and like warm up and like connect and look people in the eye and do all these kind of ritual things to, to sort of at least establish this like exterior connection with people. Now it's just like I find that stuff to actually be distracting yeah. and keeps me from connecting to people because the like I respect that people say I got your back and they it's a ritual I got your back and they touch your back and stuff I don't I don't like that I, I don't I don't, don't like that either I just like just just let's shoot the shit yeah. before the show and maybe talk about kind of like what our principles are for the show like do you want to start slow do you want to have a lot of edits do you want to it also depends on who you're with, and I don't know. I kind of approach it with, like, two parts humility and one part stage hog. Mm-hmm. It used to probably be reverse, but now it's more humility than stage hog. My goal, my secret goal, my secret improv trick is I'm always trying to get the other person to break. I want to do something that 
so surprises them yet makes so much sense in the moment that they lose it. I think that that's what's scary about playing with you. Because I, I, I feel very different now, but when I used, when Tiny was still on the stage, I was lucky enough to be invited to play in it a bunch of times. It was a terrifying show. It's with you and Miriam Tolan and Tara Copeland and Eason and, and mm-hmm. Manzukis would play. It was a very, very scary show to be in. And, and the feeling that I would get when you and I would play together would be like, oh shit, like I'm being challenged right now to come up with something great. And it would be this thing of like, oh, fuck, I can't come up with something great. And it's scary as shit. Well, it, took, ask, it took me the longest time to realize uh-huh. that that's not what that was. Imagine doing a set at Second City after that's, the main stage That's show. exactly what I'm... Imagine sitting in with the family. Yeah. I did that when I was 17, 18. Sit in with the family and it was just like they play at a different speed on a different level. Yeah. And, and it's like, I could, I am capable of hanging with these guys, but not with the weight around my neck of the fear that I'm not good enough. Well, that's the hard part. Yes. Is like if you're up there with Miriam Tolan and Tara and James and, and, and Jason, mm-hmm. and you got any fear on you, they will sniff it out and they'll help you. They're kind people, but they'll, they'll, they'll also like, if you've got it, yeah, you, if you got that. It's, it's just going to hold you back. Cause yeah. there's a fearlessness that they ride. And you can't go along for the ride if you've got fear. Well, what took me the longest time to realize was uh, none of these people have any more of an idea than I do right now. (laughs) They don't. They look like it because they're being decisive. Yes. But they really don't. They're Uh just, they're not waiting for me to give the right answer. They're waiting for me to be equally decisive so that we can get on with this thing. Oh, yeah. If I remember correctly, you're... Uh, not giving yourself enough credit. I was okay enough to be invited back. I, 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 think I did you the were show more a than bunch okay enough to be invited back. You but, performed admirably. But it was. I remember being relieved that you were good. Oh, That's a memory I have. I'm like, thank God. Well, you were like a magnet guy. You're kind of homegrown. Yeah. And those guys were more UCB people or Chicago people. Jason was like a UCB guy. Yeah. Tara became a magnet person, but was really like they're all UCB heroes. Yeah. So I wanted magnet people to show up, you know, and, you know, and perform and be like, see, we got something great here too, guys. Subjectively, it was a very scary thing. So there was a lot of pressure on you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A huge amount of pressure. I was also, back when I was playing in Tiny, I was also house managing most Saturdays. (laughs) So I would be, (laughs) I would... I would manage the You're house like up until, up until showtime, and then I'd get on stage and play with you guys, yeah. and I'd go back to managing right afterwards. And I would have like signals with the interns that I could see through the door in case like something was needed. Oh my god! It's a lot of pressure. And you handled it. It was a lot of pressure. But there, there's an interesting. You've earned everything that you have here. Nothing's been given to you. Thanks. You blazed a trail. You've become who you are in at Magnet for being capable enough to handle all of it, and then prove yourself constantly. Thanks. Becoming a performer, becoming a teacher, running Megawatt. I mean, you're even getting pretty good at interviewing people at podcasts. It's, it's, yeah, it's loosening up a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What is this, episode six? Yeah. You're getting there, man. Yeah, thanks. I imagine 12. (laughs) That's crazy. There's a, there's a, okay, so, so the way that we teach improv here. Mm Uh, uh, and certain experiences that you have when you're good enough. I remember doing a master class with you and you gave an analogy that I, I still use all the time. 
you were describing that moment in a scene you described it as being like on a flying trapeze where you're kind of early in the scene, you're kind of gaining momentum. Mm -hmm. And there comes a moment where you have to let go and grab the next rung. And if you don't let go, the momentum just begins to waste away Mm. and, and, and the scene goes flat. It's a really, really great apt metaphor. And there's a moment in your career as a performer where that happens too. Uh, uh, you have to kind of grab the next rung or, or you begin to, to kind of lose it a little bit. The way that we teach here um, is sort of exemplifies a thing of, I think, making it easy on the people around you to play. So like for me, the ultimate example of that is I, I encourage students all the time to do mixers and I encourage them to do scenes specifically with the most afraid person the newest person. I love that. And it's very useful training because absolutely, when you're playing opposite that person and yep. you recognize all of their insecurity, all of your shit disappears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you exist for the sole purpose of making them feel comfortable And I on think stage. that's where the whole your, treat your scene partner like the most important person on stage comes from. Absolutely. And I think that that, that, that becomes kind of uh, an overused uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of agreeing with what you're saying and also noticing that over the years, like that corrective of like, hey, selfish people, you need to treat your scene partner like the most important person. That that needs correcting as well. well you like, can overcorrect in that direction. Like a lot of, of improv guidelines or philosophies, mm-hmm. what starts as pragmatic ends up becoming this sort of like moralizing shit right. that's not terribly yes. helpful. Uh, a lot of, a lot of turns to dogmatism and then people are just repeating what they heard in their improv class and, and have a bunch of dissatisfied customers. Look at what happened to everything Del Close ever said. Everything has been become codified into rules Mm -hmm. and if you actually read enough of his stuff he contradicts himself all the time Mm -hmm. some people swear by the your first idea is your truest idea some people swear by the third idea is your best idea which one's right my Mm -hmm. guess is he was in a room with somebody who kept on blabbering it sounded like a gunshot. gunshot yeah so podcast listeners we have a great alibi. <laughs> it is 5 p.m. right now on uh, February the 9th, and uh, there we go. We're taken care of. Uh, um, oh, Adnan Sayed, poor guy. Yeah. I think he did it. Go on. My guess is somebody was uh, talking a bunch of nonsense, and Dell told them, slow down. In another situation, somebody was waiting too long, really ponderously thinking, and Dell told them, just your first thought, go mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And those ideas now become codified as the ways sure. to do it. And then over time, they become even more than the ways to do it. They become like the morality of improv says, mm-hmm. the behave this way, yep. which is all, it, it is ridiculous. I'm all about pragmatism. It, it's what creates an experience that works, mm-hmm. that makes it challenging, challenging, but creatively fulfilling for the people on stage and makes for an exciting performance for people to watch. Improv itself is a contradiction. Yeah. It's a living contradiction. Okay, watch me do this thing that I'm promising is going to be worth watching, which I purposely don't have a plan for. It's a, it's a, you're, you're entering into, you're, you're beginning with that promise. Mm-hmm. It is a nutty thing to do. It's crazy. Yeah. I am a, I'm going to teach tonight at 6.30 to 9.30, and I guarantee I will contradict myself constantly throughout. But it's funny, each person needs to hear a different piece of the religion 
at different times in their growth as an improviser. Mm-hmm. They walk up to, they, they work themselves towards a new wall that needs to be crumbled. And sometimes you need to help someone find the door that is right in front of them. And sometimes you need to help someone scale it. And sometimes you need someone to help someone dig under it or destroy it. It depends on what it is. It's, you, you, be, you become good as a, as a teacher, which I think is a whole different improv skill, but still related to improvising, at seeing like this person needs to be slapped on the back to get the word to come out of their mouth. I think of this uh, listening to some reading about Buddhism and some, some monks would walk around with a stick to slap you with. Mm-hmm. And some would use the same stick to poke you so you don't fall asleep. And others would use it to point you to the door to leave because you're not ready at all, you know? It's, it, it's, it's never, it's, it's always fascinating. It's never ending as an instructor. I get a lot of energy from teaching. It takes a lot of energy out of me as well because I want to be really good. I want to be useful. People are paying money. But I get a lot of energy, too, because I see, like, oh, my God, that was me. I know that feeling right now. I know where you're at. I have empathy for you. You're, like, getting the game, and then it leaves too quick because you're trying to – you're thinking what's the the next two moves where you really need to think what's the next one move and have some faith that you will come up with the third one or the next one. Or, hell, make it a little harder on your scene partner. They need to lean against you, so push back a little mm-hmm. bit. Don't let them get away with everything. Push a little bit back. No one can lean. If you're leaning on each other, that's great. But if one person's leaning and the other person is just accepting it, it becomes so soft and limp and unsatisfying. I use that word a lot when I teach. Limp? It's unsatisfying. Yeah. Like, okay, good scene. I use limp when I'm not teaching. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll say it 700 times a day. <laughs> when I am teaching i think about like was that satisfying yeah not was it good not was it great but was it satisfying did you as an improviser are you satisfied with that work because sometimes great scenes are still unsatisfying and sometimes scenes that were a little clunky feel a little like yeah i'm i'm getting there i'm feeling it you know but to to like and it doesn't need to be a grand slam every single scene but it really should feel like you're doing more and more Grand Slam scenes and fewer and fewer scenes that are just like, should I be doing this? Well, that's interesting because that, that, that gets back to, to, to this point about when you're playing with very fearful people, all of your fear, if you're good enough or if you're cognizant enough in that moment to register that mm-hmm. their fear needs to yeah. be grounded. Well, you become a bit of a parent. You become stage. a bit, yes. And, and suddenly you exist for them to succeed and yes. your fear dissipates and you're capable of great spontaneity yes. because you're no longer self-conscious. True. And the audience is on your side. And the audience is on Because they want your... you to not be a dick and exactly. wipe the floor with this per- this newbie. And so you know, don't be a jerk. People are inherently surprised and amazed by you being kind and decent. <laughs> It's true. It, yes. one, one of the That's most, why I use it sparingly. Yeah. If you want to like really shock people in an improv show, be decent yeah. on stage and they're going to be fucking amazed by that. <laughs> they don't expect it. Nobody sees it coming. But um, so that's a, an important part of that process that you have to kind of inculcate into yourself. That has to be part of your spirit is that ability to not be preoccupied with your own uncertainties, your own fears. 
uh, uh, um, to be available to the people around you. But there's another point where you have to kind of grab that next rung. And mm-hmm. that rung is that, that Kevin Dorfer, Scott Adsit thing where you can't be afraid of not being good enough. You can't be afraid of not hitting above your weight a little bit. You can't be afraid of not mm-hmm. asserting yourself. Mm-hmm being decisive right because it's in that that something like your voice is such a fucking pretentious way to say it but but your power or your whatever the hell it is begins to like really come out yes you think of the great performers uh oh uh, thank you you're oh welcome. you mean other, go sorry well you manzukis uh we do um, have something special i think he and i bring something out in each other that is uh hostile and aggressive and supportive at the same time and it's like comes from a place of mutual admiration and also this destructive force within us to like kind of destroy what the audience expects of this show and thereby we end up feeding their expectation because they expect us to destroy it it's kind of a very fun thing to do it's fun to watch you guys because you bring out the mischief in each other Mm -hmm. which is always exciting as Mm -hmm. hell to watch you know Uh, um but that that's what I'm like really interested in these days is that that quality of decisiveness to the moves that you're making uh, that doesn't dick around that mm-hmm. that doesn't do what you're saying of lead to scenes that are okay mm-hmm. but ultimately not satisfying yeah. scenes that just get to the point shows that just get to the point. Yeah. I love the get to the point thing because I think when people know what the scene is about and they start improvising to the to like I know where we're headed so I'm going to fill in the space up to that point I feel it I feel that time lengthen I feel like they're taking my blood from me when I watch it and when I'm when I'm teaching I'm always like so you knew you were going to get there right yes so please just say that just go to that and then start improvising right. because I feel like you're cheating. Like how, how close to the moment can you play? You know what I see all the time now is people having figured out their thing and then they're saving it for their third beats in a Herald. And the first and second beat becomes this like smart build up to it, Ugh. but it's completely, yeah, exactly. Really? The second you do your third beat now, yeah. do is it now. Cause of like Snapchat. Yes. It, least, uh, I don't even know how to get it on my phone. Uh, well, you just download it. It's just an app. <laughs> no. You just get it from the app store. But then you have to log in, and I'm not going to tell them my Google It's already password. logged in. It's already there. It's in the cloud. They've got it for you. Okay. Oh, and, and then, then how it, do you, you subscribe? Gotta, because I tried, and then suddenly I was like, I think I would... You're, I think I donated <laughs> money to ISIS. <laughs> I'm not... Sh- I tried to use Snapchat, and it ended up supporting... I mean... <laughs> I call it Dash, but for our audience, yeah, I think they'll call it ISIS. I don't, yeah. Do you think it's a generational <laughs> thing, or it's just become like, the, the oh my gosh. No, it's a fear thing. It, it, uh, it's a it's a fear thing. It's a fear that's of okay. if it's a fear of if if I if I get to it right now, mm-hmm. then, then where, then do, where I do I go? Yeah, uh, but but like perversely, that's that's. The show. That's yes. the point. That's the fun. Oh my God, it's so much fun. Don't figure but it's it out. also, that's the crack. It's right. hard. Like, you have a lot of, like, the, like that's, that's the, meaning that's the, 
extreme version of improv is actually improvising and right. not we're doing a scene and now we're fulfilling the checklist of requirements for what is a good scene. And then like, oh, I saw where you were going and I was headed there with you and that sort of, but like really improvising without getting caught up in stopping things mm-hmm. and challenging the mm-hmm. moment. But just like fully, so what I say to people when they say like, but I knew I was going to, but after that, I don't know where to go. Or if I jump there, it's too abrupt. It doesn't feel real. And I say, okay, well, discover that thing. Rediscover it. Know that that's in your back pocket where you're headed, but invest in the moment of right now in your acting, okay, in your body, in your performance. And you may discover organically some other better thing has occurred that you want to follow versus that thing that you were planning, or it may lead perfectly into that thing. And then you look even better, you know, but like, there's so much more to do than come up with ideas and say what those ideas are. That's where I think as we wrap up, I think the limitations of the idea of serving a single game can be found in that idea of now we know what the game is. Are we really improvising anymore? Mm if we're simply fulfilling the need of this outside thing, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a can of worms to kind of un- unpack, but maybe you are more fulfilling the game in the scene when you're jumping to it immediately. Maybe it's kind of like a separate discussion, but well, I, I think you see that manifest in a lot of second beats where, People figure out the game and then everything goes to headfirst play mm-hmm. and everything has a kind of um, mapped out, mm-hmm. bloodless, immobile mm. quality to it. It's definitely a, uh, a, different, a difference from what I did in Chicago and in Los Angeles. There, the idea that a second beat would be different characters but same game yeah. was like, yeah, you could do that. I've seen it. But it's certainly not the way that you would want to do it. So real it's quick. Too, it's too like inside and heady. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, that could be that we were like, why would you tinker with something that's already working great? Yeah. But, that's my feeling on it is there's more to be done with these two. There's more mm-hmm. to be done right here. You figured out what's important it to these characters. It's a little bit of a short form exercise of yes, like, let's see the new game I can play with this game. Yeah. And I feel like that's great. Do it. Do it half the time. Do it quarter of the time. Do it once in a while. But don't make that the, the dogmatic way of doing it all the time because yeah. that's unsatisfying I for kind of, me. I, I have a hard time thinking that way. And I usually am left underwhelmed when I see people do it. When mm-hmm. people do it mm-hmm. well, it's awesome. But a, a lot of times there's something kind of smarty pants to the move that yeah. I don't appreciate. You know, I'd much rather just see people kind of stay the course with what they created. Yeah. I think of it more in acting terms. And I'm not a great second beat player. Um, uh, um, the more I think about second beats, the worse they become. I just need to kind of like just do them. But I do think of second beats as almost like by the end of the first beat, I've kind of figured out what I want. And the second beat is going for that thing. Mm. The second beat is a more animated. Uh, um, it's not a reiteration, mm. but it's the thing of I don't need to discover anymore what's important to me. Yeah. I now know what's important to me. Hmm. But now what I need to discover is uh, what happens when I pursue that thing. What happens when I actually reach for it. Or what happens after you've got or it. Or what happens like after you've got it. Beginning the scene with the consequences of achieving the thing you figured out you wanted to get. Right. 
And that speaks to what you're saying of like, but what about the third beat? I should do that then. Well, the third beat's going to be based off the end of the second beat. Right. Or what you learn in the second beat. I don't know. I, I don't know about the whole... I mean, I don't know. The, the more I do this stuff, the less I really have definitive answers for what it is. I just know from my experience, like, God, when Harold comes together... Yeah. Oh, man, that's what you want is the the last beat of the last scene to change your perception of what the first two beats were and them all to collide and be finished off with a little bit of whipped cream of a group game at the end when there's a touch of chaos and a surprise and suddenly everything makes sense and the audience says, holy shit, how the hell did you make that up? That's what I go for. Oh, that was great when I saw people do it and when I got to do it myself. So I have this kind of like, maybe it's mythology built up around the Herald, but it seemed to work. It seemed to, seems to still work. One, I've been at this not nearly as long as you've been at it, but I, I've also hit the point where I've seen too many exceptions to what I used to teach as being like the approach to it mm-hmm. that I'm no longer confident in the approach to it anymore. Mm-hmm. In my mind these days, it's much more of you're kind of, you know, if there are certain habits that tend to lead to more forward advancing scenes or, or, or you yeah. know, or certain habits that tend to lead to scenes that are easier to play or whatever, but it's more like trying to get a feel for where the spark of life is to this thing yeah, and doing whatever it takes right now for this particular show to tend to that and see it through to some kind of fruition. And you don't always know exactly what that fruition is going to be, but that's almost the more exciting thing is like listening for what makes this thing. Where's the spark in this? Yes. To me, like, yes. And yeah, I totally agree. Cause this, Yeah. We don't really have great words. We've been doing this for a long time, but we don't have great words to describe what that thing is that you're talking about. To me, it's like we use truth or honesty, and I think that that's really like we're swirling around that, and there is going to be another word, but it's like I kind of use authenticity, mm-hmm. and and it to me, it's like the the believable the believability of what you're doing and also the honesty of the person who is performing at the same time. So the character is informed by your honest reaction as the actor in the midst of this scene, like no BS sort Mm -hmm. of thing, Mm -hmm. without being a challenge to the reality of the scene. So, wish I had a great example, but uh, if you are being a certain way in a scene, if you're being like, let's say you're a, uh, a, a bossy boss at a factory, and you're bossing me around, and I uh, do the great improviser move of being the type of guy who is bossed around, right? I don't just challenge you. Mm -hmm. There is part of me being bossed around in the scene by you. So I will play with that as well as the character. So I'm playing too with Lewis while our characters are also playing. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where like I'm, I'm interested in it. There's no no outsider would know what's going on until they sort of sniff a little bit of like elbowing each other a little bit in the scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Jason and I have our uh, our spark. 
you know, which is I'm actually messing with him, but I'm still doing, I'm still doing the scene correctly, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm messing with him. Um, I'm trying to upset his plan. He's going this far. I want you to go this far in this direction. Or, you're, oh, you're leaning this way? I'm going to pull you in that direction faster than you intended. So there's another game on top of the game of playing an improv scene. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this magic trick for you, but we're actually messing. Like, there's a subtext of two performers playing with and in competition with each other. And it doesn't come out in every scene. Some scenes lead to that more fun. But that's why it's hard to play with people you dislike or don't respect. Right. It's easy to play with people who are terrible at improv because you can just like kind of like build a structure around them and make it fit and work. But if they're good at improv but you just don't respect them or you dislike them, that's kind of harder because the playfulness, there's no uh, kindling there to let that spark turn into something that's like a fire, I feel. Mm-hmm. So be well-liked, people. Be well-liked. And people will want to play with you. That's the other thing I tell people. Play like you want other people to want to play with you. Yeah. Be the person who other people are like, I want to play with that person. Yeah. And that's a different style of than just trying to be a good improviser. Well, that's another one of those things that is a pragmatic piece of advice that's turned into yeah. a piece of moralizing over mm, time. But it's just, it's just pragmatic. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. Be, have habits that make people want to be around you. And you get to play more and be better. The only, the only part of this whole conversation where you sounded a little bit like an asshole yeah. was when you were like, don't be an asshole. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Because you're not. Well, because it sounds so bossy, don't be an asshole. Don't but, be an asshole. Yeah, but Usually you know only assholes say stuff like that. Well, that's true. You guys, be nice to each other. It's like, you're not being nice to me right now I'll by t- saying that. I'll, I'll, I'll be serious, though, about it. Stop hitting your brother or I'm going to whack you. Year, you know? <laughs> years of running Megawatt. The number one thing that I took from it was just don't be an asshole, guys. Mm-hmm. It, 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 stop. Don't make it hard for each other. Yeah. Show up on time. Yeah. Don't gossip about each other. Don't be fucking horrible. Like, take, you know what I mean? It's parenting. Like, yeah. Zip up your jacket. It's 23 degrees out. Yeah. Wear gloves. Yeah. It, it, so much of that shit eroded things away for people. Yes. And things that from the outside looking in, you say, well, that's such an easy fix. Don't be an asshole. And I have blanket forgiveness for everyone who's ever been an asshole because I've been that asshole. Sure. And I have in improv groups where I was just like, you know, come on, guys, follow me, goddammit. And then just being frustrated with people who weren't as skilled or as experienced and frustrated with a lot of things and taking it out on other teammates and not giving, you know giving credit where credit was due and feeling superior and all of those things. It's something I think that is, uh, I, I, I honestly think we mentioned a lot of great names and they would probably agree that they went through that period as well. Mm-hmm. You know, of like, oh, I was a bossy dick. I learned. I got out of that, hopefully. Or now I'm like, less. <laughs> Ed Herbstman, folks. Thanks for talking. <laughs> uh, great. That, that feels great. That's right. uh, thanks, everybody. That's been this episode of the podcast. A couple of big thank yous. First off, to our producer, Evan Ford Barton, to our engineer. But you agree, Grant right? Grant Michael Goldberg. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm I definitely. Not, you no. wouldn't, the first thing that comes to your mind isn't like that guy's a bossy dick. 
Uh, I, I have certainly been a huge asshole myself and probably in a very quiet, passive way. But mm-hmm. I've, I think I've quietly made things difficult for people. Well, how old are you now? 34. Oh, yeah. Well, that's when you grow out of it. Yeah. I mean, some people don't grow out of it. But I would say I forgive you if you're in your 20s. Yeah. And you make the mistake of being the asshole. Yeah. Well, part of it is, is you have a lot of hormones surging through your body. You're doing this this thing, thetans. That's real and thetans. Yeah. Uh, um, so you're stressed as shit because your thetan levels are through the roof. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't, is that how it goes? I don't through know. the roof is Do a you want- L. Ron Hubbard phrase. <laughs> it's become to- <laughs> popularized to say through the roof, but now it's it's from Dianetics originally. Yeah. Through the roof. Yeah. yeah. Um, Page one eighty-seven. Uh, the, you're, you're in this environment where you're, you are you constantly having to prove yourself, and and you do to yourself to yourself and to others, and, and you also want to get laid. And you want to get yeah, you do pretty much. You do you uh, you want to look good, and and this thing is very important, and it doesn't have much reward to it other mm-hmm. than the esteem of other people and your own Which sense of self esteem. Discount as unimportant it, it, it's it's a serious motivation yes respect uh, yeah and so like all of those things come together where you get a little like prissy so about could we say sometimes. that it's the rare person who isn't like this yes. in their 20s yes but so so here's a maybe a better way of putting that instead of don't be an asshole uh uh um power through it grow out of it sooner grow out of it sooner or respect the fact that other people you're surrounded oh, yeah. by people who feel the same way that you Yes. Do. Oh, that's sick. Have empathy yeah. for your fellow assholes. Yeah. Oof. I yeah, respect we're all we're all taking turns being the biggest asshole. But we all have quite a bit of asshole in us and mostly it's it is coming from a good place. Mostly. Oh, of course. It's all about the work. Yeah. And 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 like I said getting Getting, getting late, late yeah. 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 But you were sorry I interrupted your end credits. That was it. Magnet Podcast. If you guys enjoyed it, please give us a positive rating on iTunes or whatever platform you're using these front. days. Well, it, it says it in the description, right? We'll start saying it up front. I will. We'll do it. We just got two new uh, uh, two new reviews this week. From who? I don't know. What, I don't know were they positive? Names. They were nice. We're all five stars. Who did you have on last week? Uh, Michael Delaney. Oh, that guy's a crazy, like, over-reviewer. He's I bet it was him. <laughs> it is I true. I bet it was him. Yeah, we immediately, we immediately got, and all the reviews are mostly just about. Was one of the guys' names Dykel Mullaney? Yeah, I should have seen that, right? Because Dykel so, is not, not a real name. A real name. I now I know that. I was so excited to see the no five No one's been like, stars. hey, nice to meet you. Uh, this is my friend Dykel. <laughs> And you're like, oh, that's a name. That doesn't happen. Bye, everyone. Bye. (laughs) That's it. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. 
Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.